Welcome to The Smiley Connection, a podcast brought to you by the Smiley Professionals Network and The Smiley. On this show, we'll bring you professionals from all walks of life and across all industries to help you grow professionally and personally. We'll laugh, we'll learn, we'll connect. And who knows, you may find your next Smiley Connection on our show. Hello and Yali Mother, everyone. It's Sony Gossam, your host. I hope 2022 is off to a wonderful start for you. Before we begin today's episode, I wanted to make a quick announcement. We're introducing a new co-host for the Smiley Connection podcast. Her name is Reem Merchant. She's actually been our head of relationship management over the last few months, helping to get to know a speaker's story before the actual interview. She's been doing such an amazing job, and I could use a little help to bring more compelling and inspiring stories of Ismailis all over the world. So with that said, the Ismaili Connection team is so thrilled to have Reem hosting episodes moving forward. So stay tuned for that. And on today's show, I spoke to Ulner Merrily, who's a certified mediator, a former diplomat, and co-founder of Venn Mediation which is a full-service mediation provider, helping people to have difficult conversations and resolving conflicts in a more equitable way. So think handling divorces and family disputes as well as commercial disagreements and the like. Ulnor started Ben Mediation in April 2020, so right at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. He shares a lot of lessons about starting his own venture and the challenges that came along during the global health crisis. But before starting his company, Ulnor spent 11 years in the public sector, including nine years as a diplomat. He was a chief of staff at the Aga Khan Development Network, and he also worked for the government of Canada for over a decade, including a short stint at the Canada Revenue Agency. Elnor also has a master's of public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School in the US, and a bachelor's in mathematics and statistics from Queen's University in Canada. That's right, he studied mathematics and statistics, and then ended up as a diplomat and mediator, sometimes even working through high-stakes hostage situations. So I asked Alnor, how does that happen? How does someone go from studying math to becoming a professional mediator? Well, that's where this episode begins. Hope you enjoy. It's been quite a long and winding path, but I think I'm where I am because it wasn't the most direct path. And I've come to realize that's sometimes the way life is going to be. I actually started at pre-med, like a lot of people, I think, born into Indian families, either it's doctor, engineer, or lawyer. I kind of started down that path and I realized that I just didn't like any of my classes. So at the end of first year of college, I switched to mathematics just because that was something that I was passionate about. And I figured it'd be easier to study something I cared about and was interested in and was good at than just something that would be a means to an end. So that's kind of how I got on the math path and loved it. I never looked back from that. I was so glad that I made that switch and that I hadn't kind of gone through four years of science to go on to do something that I might not have actually enjoyed. That was kind of how that happened. And then after I graduated from college, I wasn't really sure what to do. And I was unemployed for a bit. And that was a difficult time. But I think I've also actually learned the most from those periods. I've been unemployed because it really helped me put things in perspective and figure out what I was passionate about and actually helped me better myself. So I ended up applying for jobs. And actually, what was interesting is I came so close to working at a medium security prison in rural Ontario, just because I was having such a hard time finding a job. And I figured this would be like the one way to get my foot in the door, Wow! which I would have gladly taken if that had kind of been the way things had worked out. But luckily that didn't happen. So I did end up getting that job with the revenue agency, which is the equivalent of the IRS in the US, but I wasn't taking taxes for anyone. So hopefully no one's booing me right now, (laughs) but it was great. And I think a lot of people struggle with this issue post-college is how do you get experience because people want to hire people with experience, but they won't hire you if you don't have experience. So it wasn't like the thing that I dreamed I would do post-college, but it was really great just to be working on something and meeting people and like bettering myself. And like I said, getting that experience. And so while I was there, I started applying for other jobs. And what was interesting is I was up for a promotion and I lost it to my own mother. <laughs> I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way. She, Both my parents actually worked for the revenue agency as well. She's an incredible person, but at 20 something to lose a promotion to your mom, I was like, Oh my God, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> she deserved it for what it's worth. And in the end, because I didn't get that promotion, I ended up getting into the Canadian Foreign Service Development Program. And that was actually just something that I'd applied to just to, once again, to kind of see what I could do, get some experience and like, why not travel the world? But it was interesting because I had never taken a political science class or international affairs class in my entire life. 
And here now, this was going to be what I would be doing for a significant part of my career. So that was certainly interesting, but brought me to where I am today. Got it. Wow. I have definitely a couple of questions for you. Uh, That's so fascinating. How did you figure out that math was your passion? And I ask because I know that sometimes there are those people like, for me, for instance, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. And for me, when I was 10, I knew that I wanted to go into journalism. And for others, it's not that easy, right? Like they go through life not really knowing what it is that they want to do. And when they're in college, they still don't know what they want to major in. And sometimes you feel like you're, you're in a time crunch. And then you graduate and then you're still not sure what it is that you exactly want to do with your life. So do you have any like life lessons or just suggestions for how people can find what it is that they're passionate about or what they can potentially do in their careers? Yeah, sure. I mean, for what it's worth, I turned 40 next year and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) So I'm not sure if we ever actually answer that question, but it was a bit of a struggle because, you know, there was a part of me, I think that did want to become a doctor, but I had this really great conversation. I've actually been so blessed to have so many mentors throughout my life for just people that kind of show up for one conversation or like one period of your life, and then they kind of disappear. But the amount of value they inject for that has such a huge impact on the rest of your life. And I was actually just on a, uh, getting a lift from someone to get to Toronto from Ottawa, where I was living at the time, who was in med school. And he kind of asked me, Elmer, why do you want to be a doctor? And I was like, well, I want to help people. And he was like, well, you know, there's a lot of ways to help people besides being a doctor. And I was like, huh. And it seems so simple, but I hadn't really thought of it that way. And I'd like to think that I've actually found ways to help people as well, um, but in ways that I'm, I'm more passionate about. So I think some of this stuff can be a bit cliche, but I think it's actually true that a lot of times when you find that passion, and that's actually kind of how I feel about mediation right now as well, it doesn't always feel like work. And that's what kind of excited me in the first place. So that's that's a part of it. And then just really trying to try new things. And I've also learned that some of the best lessons I've learned in life are when I put myself into situations where I was uncomfortable. Um, it is uncomfortable and it can feel terrible, but that's also where I've experienced the greatest amount of growth. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for sharing that. The other thing I wanted to ask is you mentioned both of your parents who worked at the Canada Revenue Agency. Did that kind of inform, I mean, was, was that sort of like an influence to what your first job out of college was going to be? To a certain degree, like one of the, I think dichotomies I've struggled with in my life is I think there's some people I know who feel, who actually, you know, know what they're worth and they feel like they kind of want to get there right away. Uh, And I know people that have achieved that. And then there's other people I feel who have a philosophy of you kind of have to earn where you're going to get to. And then obviously there's a whole spectrum in between. So I think kind of growing up, like I had that latter philosophy and I'm not to say that one is right or wrong. I think the older I've gotten, the more I've kind of learned of my self-worth and I've started to actually turn down jobs because I don't believe that they're the best value for me at the time. But I still also have that philosophy that sometimes you do have to kind of get your foot in the door and earn your way forward. So that's actually what kind of led to that whole prison job possibility was if I'd gotten that job, it would have kind of got my foot in the door with the Canadian government. And then that opens you up to be able to apply to a whole bunch of jobs that aren't available when you're an external candidate. So, you know, both my parents were incredibly supportive and this was a world that they knew. So they said, why don't you start applying for jobs in the government? This is where we've done really well. I think from like a community perspective, they're seen as great jobs because you have job security, you have financial security. Probably at the time knew that wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, but it would at least kind of get me started on a path. And then hopefully I could figure it out from there. And just so you're aware, the, the job was something called a testing analyst. Basically, you'd be given new software and then essentially develop test cases to try to break it. So like, it actually wasn't that like boring from someone with a mathematical mind to kind of think of the various permutations of how a software could or couldn't work mm-hmm. and then see if you could crack it. But, you know, after you've done a couple hundred test cases on how to like enter a date field, you start to get a bit numb. So I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that I had that job, but I'm also glad that I left it. Got it. Um, and so you were at that job for about almost a year and a half. When was the point where you realized, okay, it's time for me to move on and do something that I actually want to do? Can you just sort of bring us to that pivotal moment where it kind of clicked in your head? Yeah, I think I never actually stopped thinking that. So like I said, I was happy to get the employment. I actually felt it was only six months at the time. It felt like a million years, like between graduation and getting that first job, just because I've always been a very active person. And, you know, I would say that like my greatest fear in life besides snakes is like not doing something meaningful. So mm-hmm. I feel like when we're, we're born, we have this very clear path. Most of us have a very clear path up until the age of about 22. You know, like you're, you have to go to school, then high school, then college, and then things start to open up a little bit. And that 
freedom was actually a little bit frightening to me because I had that freedom, which I know is a blessing that not everyone has, but I put kind of a burden on myself or a responsibility to do something meaningful with that. You know, like I feel like I was in this position where my parents had struggled so I could have those choices. I had to validate all of their hard work. So that first period of unemployment was really difficult for me, but you know, I also knew that I was capable of doing things and I wanted to do things. So even though I got that job for me, that wasn't an end, but a beginning, because like I said, now that I was in the government, I was eligible to apply for so many other positions and positions that were a better fit for me. And I also knew that as I got more experience, I could also become more marketable in the private sector too. So from the moment I took that job, I actually probably doubled my efforts. And it was shortly into that period that the Canadian Foreign Service had a recruitment campaign. And what's interesting is, is that actually wasn't the first time that I had applied for foreign service. I'd actually applied in my final year of college. And I would say that was probably the first significant failure of my life to like not get in. Because, you know, like I got into every college I'd applied to. I had gotten good grades my whole life. Like I pretty much achieved everything I'd ever set out to. And then at the end of college, this was like my first significant life failure. And it was difficult But like I said, it also put me on a different path that I still ended up circling back to, but I probably learned a lot of valuable lessons along the way. Can you share what some of those lessons were? Yeah, sure. Happy to. I think for me, like I know when I first kind of graduated, I was just so committed and so focused on like trying to find something. And that led to a pretty rapid burnout, you know, and also a feeling of low self-esteem and low self-worth. So I think eventually I got into this balance of, you know, I would commit a couple hours every morning to applying for jobs and like looking for things to do. But then I would devote the rest of my day to things that either brought me joy or bettered myself. So both my parents were heavily involved in community work and community service. So I was doing a lot of community work at the time. I started exercising more regularly. I was reading books, you know, I was meeting up with friends. I remember at one point I was a dinosaur in a kiss parade for one day or something. <laughs> I did election monitoring, which, you know, I would end up doing later on in my career as well. So like, a lot of random things, but I, you know, I realized that you know, I needed to feel good about myself and I needed to feel a sense of accomplishment. And for those people that are applying for jobs, it's actually a lot of rejection, failure, and even mainly no response. And for me, that wasn't a sustainable thing. So to find these other outlets and to just find joy in life and to not feel guilty about that was really important for me. I kind of carried those lessons going forward. After a year and a half, Ulnar finally made the leap into the side of government that he was interested in, splitting the next 10 years as a diplomat for the Canadian government in Afghanistan, Canada, and Bangladesh. It's an incredible period of my life, one that I enjoyed immensely, and I've been out of that game for about six years now. And on the one hand, I'm really happy with what I'm doing now. On the other hand, I treasure those memories, and I haven't actually closed the door on returning to the Canadian Foreign Service, but time will tell. Stay tuned, and we'll see how the story unfolds. But overall, it was amazing. Some of my best friends in the world right now, I, I met through that experience. What was interesting is the first part of it, the Canadian Foreign Service requires all candidates to be bilingual. So you actually spent your first year, if you're not already, becoming bilingual in Canada's two official languages, so English and French. So I had learned French growing up, but never really grasped it. So my first nine months was actually back in school, which some of my other cohort members and it's interesting to kind of learn a language later in life because, like I said, generally always been a high-performing, high-functioning individual. Learning a language from scratch makes you feel about this big. My fingers are a centimeter apart. But also like to see people in that, like some of my best friends are from that period because we saw each other at our worst. We were vulnerable. We were like failing at something. We were struggling with something, but we ultimately overcame it. So the language learning part of it was really interesting. Kind of felt like summer camp a little bit, but it was a really cool experience. And then I started. And like I said, I had zero background. Like I've always read the news and like, I know a few state capital, you know, nation capitals and stuff, but like I had very little background in this. But what was interesting is at the time, the Canadian government had made a concerted push to hire non-traditional candidates because they realized that in order to like have the best diplomatic corps around the world, you want to have a diverse workforce. So like I had a math background. One of my friends was like a chemical engineer. Like there are people that weren't just poli-sci or international affair affair majors, but it was a very steep learning curve. You know, like I never had to write a single paper in college, not one. And now I was like writing for a living for senior leadership. And I mean, you know, they were very picky and they didn't have a lot of time. So, you know, one of the key lessons I learned very early on is when we're in school, we learn to write in this kind of like long flowery way with a buildup and point comes like later on, once you've had all that background in the real world, you got to get to the point right away. You have to assume that really busy people are only going to read the first paragraph of what you've written. And if you wait to kind of get to the important stuff, two pages or 10 pages on, 
no one's going to actually get any of that information from you. So that was one of kind of the tough lessons that I had to learn right away. I was first put into the Afghanistan task force, which was kind of the branch of the Canadian Foreign Service that would manage Canada-Afghanistan bilateral relations. And there, you know, there's a similar office in Afghanistan, and then we had embassies in both countries. And obviously, very sad what's happening in Afghanistan right now. I, once again, I think time will tell how that situation unfolds. But having actually, you know, worked on it and been there, and then knowing a lot of people that have been people that either lost their lives or you know lost parts of their lives because of that, it's tough to kind of see that maybe some of those gains could be lost. But this is the state of the world that we live in, and I guess we'll have to see how that unfolds. That first couple of years, I got to learn the ins and outs of like how government works and like how government communicates and how the government makes decisions. And at the end of that first year and a half, I actually got sent on my first diplomatic posting to Afghanistan. So I ended up living there for just over a year. I lived in a trailer. It was basically like a box that was eight feet by 40 feet. It was a nice trailer. It was very well furnished. I bought myself a PlayStation before I went out there just to keep (laughs) myself busy on some of the the quiet nights. And, And I also just worked my butt off the entire time that I was there. It was an amazing group of people that were really dedicated both to the mission and to kind of, you know, advancing Canadian interests in that country. There was no shortage of problems and issues that needed to be resolved. So I think I learned a lot about myself in that period as well, just in terms of how resilient I could be and how I kind of managed conflict and how I managed difficult situations and kind of self-care, which I think is probably one of the most important lessons I've learned in my life is that end of the day, there may be people that love for us and care for us, but I think we're the most important person responsible for our, our own care. And we have to kind of take care of ourselves because, you know, otherwise things can be very difficult. So my main files at that time were human rights. And I was also responsible for kind of monitoring the international community's counter-narcotics efforts. Opium was a big problem in the country at the time. At one point, there was this law that was passed in Afghanistan that severely limited the rights of the minority Shia population. And that kind of became my efforts for most of the time that I was there to work with other international partners and the Afghan government to see if we could improve the law and make things better for the people that it was affecting. So that was really an interesting experience. So then I returned to headquarters. I spent two years working for, in U.S. parlance, would be an assistant undersecretary of state at the Canadian Foreign Ministry. So that was kind of like the first chief of staff role that I did in my career, which was I thought it was very well suited for. I liked the fact that I could have my hands in many different pots and like was able to provide advice to senior leadership and to really get a sense of how the department works, kind of like being in the the top tier of how the department was making decisions was a really interesting experience for me and great to kind of also start to get a bit of sense of what my management style would be. So that two years went by very quickly. It also coincided with Canada's G8 presidency. Now it's the G7 because Russia is not a part of it, but at the time it was still all eight countries. So that was a really interesting experience. And then at the end of those two years, I went back out into the field. So I was deployed this time to Bangladesh for a two-year assignment as the head of the political, economic, and public affairs at our embassy in Dhaka. Probably two of the best years of my life, both from a personal and professional perspective. I love the work that I did. I love my colleagues. I had a really great life out there. I was able to travel. I got to really know the people and the culture. I think having done Afghanistan, where, to be honest, I didn't have a single Afghan friend or contact. Mm -hmm. outside of the people that I worked with the embassy to Bangladesh, where most of my friends were from Bangladesh. It was kind of great to have that contrast, to be able to travel around the countryside because it was safe and to try the local food and the culture, experience the culture. There's a beautiful art scene out there and music. They're very passionate people. And I truly hope that people have a chance not just to go on a one-week vacation to a resort in some country, but to live in some of these places because you never really get to know a people or experience a culture until I think you can really immerse yourself in it. And I feel so blessed to have had both those experiences through my diplomatic career. And then I returned to headquarters again, this time to work on Canada's humanitarian policy and natural disaster response. This coincided with a number of major natural disasters around the world, which I helped the Canadian government to coordinate its response to. Um, I helped work on Canada's refugee policies, and I got to really develop Canada's standard operating procedures for how it would respond to crises and disasters all over the world, which gave me a really good perspective on just crisis management in general. So also a very fulfilling period of my career. How did you land a role in this field by having just a mathematics degree and having worked for about a year and a half in in the CRA? So I'm still actually not sure because what's interesting is I distinctly remember, it's a bit of a lengthy process. They start you off with some aptitude tests and 
I mean, this is where I think I can answer your question because one of the aptitude tests was almost entirely math and logic. So, mm. you know, bragging aside, I pretty much crushed that one. Um, and then <laughs> there was an interview slash role play process. And that's where they kind of really got, they weeded down the candidates. And I remember thinking, I got home from that interview around four o'clock in the afternoon, genuinely feeling like I bombed it. Like I was just like, that could not have gone any worse. There's no way they're ever going to call me back. I basically went straight to bed, like four o'clock in the afternoon. I was so like, just upset. I'm like, I can't believe I blew this amazing opportunity. I'm just going to go straight to bed. And I slept through to the next morning. And four months later, I'm getting this job offer. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) So I'm not entirely certain. I think certainly probably having had some experience and I think being exposed to kind of some of the the values and ideas that we do as kind of part of some of the community work that we do. But also I think the fact that I was bringing a bit of a different perspective, I think they hopefully saw that value proposition. I mean, they did because they hired me, but that I wasn't going to look at things the same way that everyone was looking at things, but I was hopefully going to bring a different way of looking at things. But I think ultimately you'd have to ask the hiring managers why they thought I was appropriate. (laughs) We'll definitely have to do that then. The other thing I wanted to ask, so you went to Afghanistan for a year, then came back at headquarters, worked there for a couple of years, and then went to Bangladesh for two years. Was it hard being far away from family or did you always feel like this is what I was born to do? Hmm. I had some tough periods for sure. It was a very long way from home. We were given chances to travel over the course of the year. They call it like decompression leave or rest and relaxation leave because they recognize that you're working in a bit of a pressure cooker and that to stay in that environment for so long can be very difficult than someone that wasn't used to it. But I mean, Afghanistan is a long way from Canada. So it wasn't like I was able to fly home every time. I definitely had a ton of support from my family. Pretty much spoke to my mom at least four or five times a week. And I know she kind of told me after the fact that like her office staff were so supportive, like whenever the call would come in from Afghanistan and she could tell like on her call display, like everyone would just kind of like vacate and they would give her that space to talk to me. So, and ever since I've been a kid, like I've always had that support from my parents that no matter what time of the day it is, they'll always be there for me. And like I mentioned earlier, I used to have this, I used to have this very severe phobia of snakes. And I remember at one point in high school, I was studying for a biology exam at like three o'clock in the morning. And I had to read the page, but it was covered with pictures of snakes. And I actually woke her up at three o'clock in the morning and she put post-it notes over all the snake pictures so I could keep reading the page for me. So like, that's the kind of support that I've been blessed with growing up. So that got me through a lot of those tough times. That's amazing that you've had that support system. And then in Bangladesh, I know you said you loved the work that you did there. Could you give us a little bit of insights of what, what you did while you were there? Yeah. So a lot of it is essentially, you know, when you're on the ground in that country, your job is to be the eyes and ears of your country. And every country has its own foreign policy priorities. So like right now, for example, a lot of countries, not every country is focused on climate change. So when you're a diplomat in another country, if your country has the priority of climate change, your responsibility is to try to figure out what that country is doing on climate change. And are there ways that the two countries might be able to partner or work together? to advance that priority, because then it's something that's important to both of you. In mediation or negotiation terms, we would call that a common interest, which I'm happy to talk about later. But it's kind of about finding those common interests, and then seeing other ways to partner, keeping an eye on things that could become problems. So like, for example, Canada has an important focus on the rule of law and justice. And especially with some of these countries, where one country is giving foreign aid to the other country, There can often be parameters that need to be met or conditions that need to be met about what allows that country to give the other country aid. And if there are things happening that are problematic, it can make it difficult to get the political support back home. Because that's also what I learned is that, you know, the government works in two arms. There's the bureaucracy and there's the political side. And ultimately, it's the elected officials that make the decisions and then the bureaucracy that has to execute it. But these two arms have to work very closely together. So if the political side has a priority, it's up to the bureaucracy to observe that. So for example, as I was talking about that law in Afghanistan, it was a problem because so many countries were giving both money and lives and time to Afghanistan for the purpose of avoiding laws that were so restrictive to females or were going to abuse females' rights and stuff. And the challenge is, is that they're still an autonomous country. This is kind of what I learned, that you know we can have a view and we can have an opinion and we can link our aid to certain priorities, but you also still have to respect the autonomy of that country. And what was really interesting about that law is, the one in Afghanistan, sorry, that we ended up kind of being able to fix, we worked with Sharia law experts. So it wasn't like Canada was coming in and saying, in Canada, the law would be like this, you should do this. 
But we found experts in Sharia law that said, well, in other Muslim countries, this is acceptable. So would you consider it acceptable for your country as well? And it's really important to like not bring that kind of colonial perspective to another country, but to try to work within their context to see what's possible. While in Afghanistan, Elnor worked on two kidnapping cases. I don't want to mislead our viewers. I wasn't like in a room smoking a cigarette, like banging on a table and saying, where is he? But I actually worked on two. There was a Canadian citizen that was kidnapped when I was working for back at headquarters post-Afghanistan for that assistant undersecretary of state. And then there was actually an AKDN staff member who got kidnapped when I was working for AKDN. And I deployed it out into the field to support those efforts as well. What you think in certain confidential stuff, I can't divulge, obviously, but interesting to kind of see that perspective and kind of really what I learned during both of those experiences is that, you know, these crisis situations are difficult and they really require a combination of support and expertise and teamwork to really kind of hopefully get that person resolved. So really kind of seeing how difficult decisions are made and decision trees are used to kind of figure out what are the best outcomes. And then also really trying to like inject my own values. So, you know, what was really interesting about the second one was there's different people working on trying to resolve a kidnapping or hostage taking. And each of them has a different interest once again, which I'll I'll talk about and also different perspectives. So, you know, for the people that are negotiating, you know, their primary interest is to get the person released. But the problem is, is the decisions about what may enable that release are probably held elsewhere, which is a competing interest. Like you want to get the person released but you don't want to pay a billion dollars or maybe you want to pay no money because, you know, we know that a lot of countries have a policy that if you pay for hostages to be released or people like that, then it can encourage there to be more kidnapping and more hostage taking. So it's a real dichotomy. There's a real struggle there between like, how do you resolve these situations? How do you address the interests of the kidnappers? Because you have to, in any conflict, in any situation, you have to be able to look at everyone's perspectives to come to an outcome that could work. Because if everyone's not happy with the outcome, that outcome is not going to be possible. So that was kind of my first early exposure to seeing how like combined interests or common interests are so important. And then, you know, what can people bring to bear? So like there was an interesting point, the process where Eid was approaching and understanding the cultural context of what Eid means, you know, I was able to kind of share that context that, listen, you know, this could be a window for a greater push in the negotiation because at the end of the day, if we don't resolve this before Eid, all the kidnappers have to stay with the hostage and they don't get to go home to their families, which is like a really important thing to them. You know, so like having that kind of insight, I thought was like really helpful and being able to provide that to the team. That was kind of like some of the value that I was able to provide. It sounds like such a high pressure thing to work on. Do you feel like because you've spent 10 years in the government working on all these things and then, you know, working for AKDN, do you feel like you've gotten a better handle on how to deal with with the pressures or the burdens of working in this type of work? I'd like to think so. That's kind of, I think, where that self-care is so important. You know, I've also firmly believed, just to kind of circle back to one of your previous questions, I think I survived Afghanistan and Bangladesh because I've always had a really strong belief that you should surround yourself with the best possible people. I mean, it was a common belief that you can tell a person's character by the the kind of people they choose to surround themselves with. And I've kind of had two rules for myself. I discovered like kind of working in some of these difficult situations and dealing with difficult people is that I like to think that you should try to surround yourself with people that one, make you a better person and two, make you feel good about yourself. And I think that's what's kind of gotten me through a lot of the tougher periods of my life is I've been very selective and choosy about who I want to keep around myself because, you know, when things do get difficult, you want to feel like you have the best people around you and that they're going to support you and they're going to have your best interests at heart. So I think that's been a big factor. But also, like I said, that realization that sometimes things can go off the rails a bit. And that's okay. I've come to realize that life is not always going to go the way that I want it to. And some of my greatest successes have followed some of my biggest failures. And that's kind of what I was talking about that winding path is there's times when I had to fail in order to succeed. Like if I didn't fail at one thing, I couldn't have succeeded at the other thing. So just learning to kind of give myself also a bit of leeway, patience, learning to acknowledge what are the things that are within my control and how can I further those things and learning to understand what are the things that are outside my control and that worrying about them or losing sleep over them is still never going to change them because they're outside my control. So um, it's been a lot. I think, you know, I feel in some ways I feel wiser. In some ways I feel like I'm still... (laughs) like a 10 year old trying to struggle through this crazy world. 
but you know, here I am. I'm genuinely proud of what I've accomplished, and I'm kind of excited for what the next phase of my life is going to bring. Now, earlier in the conversation, Ulnar said there was a twist in his career path after spending several years working for the Canadian Foreign Service. At this point in time, Ulnar was leaving his post in Bangladesh when he got a call from the Aga Khan Development Network, which focuses on economical, cultural, and social development around the world. And adjacent to the AKDN is the Department of Diplomatic Affairs. And they wanted Ulnar. And, you know, the AKDN is not a country, but you know, because of the nature of the work that they do is similar to the work of an aid agency for a foreign government, it is important for them to maintain diplomatic and positive relationships with the countries in which they work. At some point in its past, the the imamath decided to develop a Department of Diplomatic Affairs um, to formally manage those relationships. So, you know, based on my background and my experience, they kind of reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in pursuing a position within the network, sorry, not the agency. And ultimately, that didn't pan out at the time, which once again was potentially for the best. I think at the time, it was a communications position in Afghanistan. And I probably could have done okay to go back to Afghanistan after Bangladesh, but I also value those two years that I had back at home in Canada with my family. But what was interesting is towards the end of those two years in headquarters working on disasters and refugee and humanitarian issues, I basically applied for my dream job. It was to go back out into the field into our embassy in Kenya. And, you know, like Kenya seemed like a beautiful posting for me because the work would have been interesting. There's some great issues. I had family out there. There was a community out there for me. You know, having been back at headquarters for two years, it seemed like the perfect fit. And, you know, I I knew all the people working there. Like in my mind, I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to get this position. And I didn't get it. And I was, I was devastated. Um, and I went through a bit of a funk for a bit and I tried to reconcile, like, what could I have done differently? And had I kind of done everything I could, had I turned over every stone? And then a few months later, I got a call saying that the AKDN was opening up a brand new diplomatic office in Canada and that they were looking to staff kind of the a chief of staff role in that office to manage kind of the program and to work with the new representative that would be coming in to help them manage their relationship with the government of Canada. And, you know, I, was very excited about this. You know, I, I, I understood the Canadian government very well. I understood how diplomacy works. Like from my perspective, I felt I would be a great fit for this job and that I would bring a ton of value. Spoiler alert, I did get the job and I did bring a ton of value, I think. But I realized that like I had to not get the Kenya job to still be available to apply for the AKDN job. Like if you go into some alternate universe where I got the Kenya job, when I get the call from AKDN saying, would you consider applying for this? I would have had said, I can't, I'm moving to Kenya in a few months. So I had to fail and I had to like not get my dream job to get a job that I had actually never even dreamed was possible. And that ended up being a really amazing three years of my life. So no regrets? Um, Nope. I mean, there's like a lot of other stuff that came out of that. Like if I'd gone to Kenya, I wouldn't have met my now wife. And, you know, so I think that's a pretty big win. (laughs) And yeah, overall, it was an amazing experience. And then if I hadn't done the AKDN job, I might not have gone to the Kennedy School. So yeah, I think at the end of the day, like a lot of people think that like there's this there's this perfect path for them or the, there's this there's a soulmate for them, but like I don't like to think that way. I think that there are many beautiful destinies out there for us, and you know we just have to pick the best path that we can and make the most of it when we're on. Like I do have come to realize that like sometimes you can want something so bad and you can do everything you think possible to get it and you don't. But I don't think that means that we should stop trying or just think that like things are going to find their way to us. Like, I think sometimes there are some things that, you know, the universe cannot stop from getting to you. But I also do think that like hard work is the most important thing that's gotten me to where I am, that perseverance, that resilience. Like I've never stopped hustling. I've never stopped trying to achieve my goals and dreams because that's, that's my responsibility. I can't count on anyone else to do that for me. Like I have to take on that mantle myself. After three years working for AKDN, Ulnar decided to go back to school to get his master's in public administration at the Harvard Kennedy School. I asked him about his motivation to go back to school, the process he went through, and if he had any tips for applying to grad school based on his own experience. I might have mentioned I'd first planned on going back to school right after college. And what I hadn't mentioned was that, once again, another mentor kind of appeared in my life for a brief period and had told me that a graduate degree can be a lot more useful once you've had a a bit of work experience because it just puts things into context. There's only so much theory you can learn without actually applying it. 
which is kind of why I put grad school on the back burner at first. And then once I got into the foreign service, that became a career option and 10 years of my life went by. So, you know, when I had kind of took the sabbatical from the foreign service to do AKDN, um, the grad school thing wasn't was still not entirely on my radar, but like in the back of my mind, it always kind of wondered if it could be possible. And then sadly, a very close friend of mine passed away at the age of 46 in 2013. So um, yeah, thank you. Um, very unexpectedly. And um, kind of in the aftermath of the funeral, a few of us had gotten together and we're talking and reminiscing and, you know, it kind of puts things in perspective and mm-hmm. someone, the conversation turned to careers and like, you know, what were we doing with our lives? And that was actually where that seed was planted by a good friend of mine who's now in DC, Ali Rahim. We had this amazing conversation after the funeral and, you know, kind of about what my dreams were, what my aspirations were. And, you know, having done the diplomatic work, um, the UN has always kind of been on my radar. Uh, I, I know that it's probably a difficult place to work and it has a lot of challenges. You know, if I went there, I'd be going from one bureaucracy to a bigger bureaucracy. I like, guess the world's biggest bureaucracy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still kind of always kept it on my radar as a place that maybe someday I can make a, a pretty important impact. And they've always had a baseline as having a graduate degree. And there's other things that I knew that I could do that might require a graduate degree. And I never wanted to feel like there was something I couldn't do because of something I hadn't done or something that was within my control. Like I said, I, I really try to focus on the things I can control and being able to go back to school was something that I, I could control. So, you know, we talked about various programs and it turns out that a number of very good schools have what are known as mid-career programs, where instead of having to do what's, I guess, generally a two-year master's degree in like public policy or public affairs or any of these kinds of things, you can actually do a one-year degree, I think because they essentially give you credit for life experience and all the work that you've done. Um, so while I was at AKDN, you know, I still had the chance to come back to the Canadian government at some point. Um, I couldn't have done anything. Um, but this seemed like a really appropriate window to, you know, post AKDN to try to, to try to tick off this box for myself. And like I said, to put myself in the best chance to succeed going forwards. Um, so I applied to six schools. Um, and you know, I like, cause I, I wasn't sure like if I would get into any of them. Um, I've often been accused of being too humble. I don't know if that came across this interview. I've probably been <laughs> a whole lot. And I guess bragging about being humble is not really humble, but yeah, I ended up applying to six schools. I had a safety school. I'm not going to say what that was. I ended up getting into all of them, <laughs> which was a huge surprise. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and like I said, I'm still surprised, but I got into every one and this included Harvard, Princeton and Columbia. And then I had to make a very difficult choice. And this is something that I've always struggled with is that this kind of idea that, like I said earlier, our parents struggle to get to where we are today. They've given us this luxury of being able to make these incredible choices. But for me personally, I've always felt a huge responsibility, if not burden, to like make the most of their sacrifices and to optimize, you know? So I really struggled with this decision. Um, Once again, enter another mentor. And um, he gave me some really amazing advice about kind of generally speaking, when people are choosing to go back to school, um, it's to uh, tick off one of, I guess, sorry, to tick off three uh, boxes. So they're called the three C's. It's content, credentials, and community. And the idea is, is that when you're going back to school, you're going to prioritize these three things in in various ways. So if you were to add up to 100, like one of them could be 40, one could be 20, and one could be 40. But the, the concept is, is if you can determine for yourself, you know, which is the ones is most important to you and how you rank them, then you can make a better decision about which school is going to give you the best opportunity. So in the end, for me, um, I definitely wanted to learn some interesting things. Um, and I wanted to get the credentials, which is why I'd applied to such amazing schools. But I also really wanted the chance to meet some amazing people and to be inspired by them. And I ended up choosing the Kennedy School in the end because it was the biggest cohort, which was overwhelming at times. My class was over 200 people. But that was 200 incredible professionals who've done amazing things with their career, who I got to spend one year of my life with, many of whom I'm still in touch with. And that ultimately was the clincher for me. So I made that decision. I got in everywhere. And I accepted the Kennedy School, and that's where I ended up. Wow, what a journey. Do you have any advice for people who are interested in working for AKDN or in any other similar role, but just don't know how to go about it, whether maybe they just, like you, didn't really study like international relations or anything like that, but at some point in life decided that that's what they wanted to do? Any advice on what steps they can take to try to get those job opportunities or volunteer opportunities or even get into a program like you did, a mid-career? 
Yeah, and I'm happy to try. I mean, it's it's hard because I feel like I said it was it was so serendipitous for me, and I sometimes frustrate some people because I mean, I never even intended. Like I, I kind of just applied for the foreign service on a whim. I was just looking to get some work experience and end up landing this career that like a lot of people will like strive their whole lives to get into. But that's also why I think I've tried to make the most of my time there because I understand um, what um, what what value it's been to have this amazing opportunity. You know, from what I've kind of gleaned over the years, I think it never hurts to learn another language. So, you know, if you can have that discipline to, you know, get Rosetta Stone or any of these apps, or even just take a class on the side, like having multiple languages, I mean, just makes you a better person in general. So that would be a first. Like I said, I think sometimes you get to be lucky like me and you just kind of land in that dream position right away. And other times you kind of have to earn your dues. And I mean, there's a lot of opportunities to work and live overseas. And some of them are paid and some of them cover costs and some of them you have to pay for. But I definitely feel like when organizations are looking to hire someone that can work and live overseas, they'd like to know that you've done it already. Because I was lucky to kind of do it under the umbrella of the Canadian government, but it it was still very difficult. It can be difficult to be that far from home. It can be difficult to be in a new environment. Like I said, Bangladesh was two of the most, two of the best years of my life, but it's a very difficult place to live. And that's not a knock on the country itself. It's just, it's difficult because it's not Canada. People don't follow traffic laws the way they follow traffic laws in Canada. And it's not to say that one is right and one is wrong. It's just, that's the way it is in those contexts. So I definitely feel like organizations feel if you've lived and worked overseas, it's going to be easier for you to do it again. So trying to find ways to do that. And at any point, like if you can find those chances in high school or during college or in the summers between your college years, I would try to do that as as much as possible. And then lastly, I would just say, try to be as well read as possible. You know, The Economist, The Atlantic, there's a lot of great sources online. Like if you can just have this, it's tough these days, I think, because who's to say what's, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But even just trying to be as well read as possible and understand geopolitics as much as possible, that would go a long way. Was there anything in your childhood that informed this inherent talent in you to be a mediator and to work with, with diplomacy? I don't know if I'd call it a talent, although my, my wife keeps telling me I'm too humble, like I said. But ultimately, I, I think what really kind of inspired me to get into mediation, and I think what probably has made me a lot better at it is I've really come to realize that in myself and probably in most people, there is a great discomfort with conflict. A lot of us really struggle when we perceive there to be a disagreement between us and other people. A lot of us struggle to ask for things because we fear rejection. And, you know, just growing up, I kind of felt like I fell into that camp, you know, like, I really struggled with if I felt that a situation was wrong, or I'd been wronged, or something wasn't right, or or perceived injustice. I really felt that burning desire inside me to fix it. But I didn't know how, you know, like, we learned so many amazing things growing up, but none of us really learned how to handle conflict. None of us learn how to communicate. And the problem is, is it's innate in most humans to have this fight or flight or freeze reaction. And, you know, our, our heart rate can accelerate and we become very uncomfortable. And it's difficult to think clearly and to speak clearly in these situations. And I mean, I, I still fall into that camp. You know, I mediate for a living. I coach people on this. I've become a lot better at this, but I still feel that in myself. And I've learned to manage it over the years. And we can talk about that a little bit too. But I have come to realize that most people struggle with this. And when I discovered mediation, I was kind of blown away that there was this way to make these difficult conversations easier and that there was almost a formula to it and that there was a way to have to resolve these conflicts and to have a bit more understanding in the world. I asked Ulner, what are some ways to deal with stress? And he mentioned something called the 10 second rule. I've definitely learned that when I'm upset about something or annoyed about something, or I feel like my heart beating in my ears or my, my chest, my heart rising in my chest, that to just even count to 10, you know, like, a lot of people say take to take breaths, but I rarely ever get past three breaths before I start like feeling <laughs> anxious again. But just just a simple count to 10, you know, like the thing is, is I've come to learn that it's so important to state your peace. I think so many times that rather than express ourselves, we we're so scared or we don't know what to do. Or we're worried about how we'll respond to something. We, just, we say or do nothing. But I've come to realize it's so important to say something, you know, even if it's something as simple as, I disagree, or what you've done has hurt me, or I feel wronged by this. It doesn't have to be like, you're stupid, or like, I hate Mm -hmm. you. But like, you know, just to to really state what you're feeling, what you're going through, because at the end of the day, what we're feeling is what we're feeling. It's hard to say what someone's going through. But at the end of the day, if that's what they're feeling, you can't disagree with that. 
So just taking those 10 seconds, I find has been really helpful. The other thing that's super important, I've touched upon this a few times, is really trying to understand where the other person is coming from. And you know, I've come to realize that most conflicts and most disagreements get stuck on what someone wants or what someone is looking for, as opposed to why they want it. We become so entrenched uh, on this. And in the negotiation world, we call what someone wants as their position. And we call why they want it as their interest. And so many negotiations become very positional and we get bogged down. And generally, positions can be opposed. But the why, the interest behind them, that's where you can find commonality. That's where you can create value. And that's been the biggest thing that served me in terms of managing conflicts and mediating for people is to really understand that core, that why, those interests, because that's that's what allows you to move forward. I think this would be a great time to talk about your business. And also, so, so this whole entire time that we've been talking about your life so far has been based either in Canada or in Bangladesh and Afghanistan. So now you're in, in New York, right? How did that move happen? Why did that move happen? And then, of course, how did you end up starting your business then mediation? Yeah, of course. So um, around the time that I was working for AKDN, speaking of kind of serendipity and, and destiny and luck and future and all that kind of stuff, um, I had flown to New York for a wedding. And after the wedding, I ended up going to Jamaat Khanna. And in Jamaat Khanna, I met a girl. And for the few times in my life, I had the guts to talk to her. And what's really interesting is we talked, but nothing really kind of really came of it. And then three weeks after I met her, my boss comes into my office at AKDN and he's like, listen, there's a meeting coming up in New York and I can't make it. I have to be somewhere else. Can you go? And, you know, my outward answer was, sure, of course. And inside I was like, hell freaking yeah, I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the three years I worked for AKDN, I, you know, I got to do that fun, quote unquote, fun excursion to Afghanistan. But I only had one trip to New York and it was three weeks after I met this girl. So, you know, the, that kind of became our first date. And then we kept in touch. She's now my wife, but she was living in New York at the time. So after I graduated from the Kennedy School, I made the decision to relocate to New York uh, and just look for, for jobs out here. The part I wanted to backtrack to quickly was while I was at the Kennedy School, I really committed to learning about conflict because like I said, it had been such a huge struggle for me. And I know that Harvard is, is very well renowned um, as being one of the leading centers on negotiation theory. So I really committed my time there to learning as much of that as possible. And it was during one of my many negotiation classes that I was exposed to the world of mediation. And I can tell you that it was one of those things where I immediately felt enamored to it. This was in the middle of a very intensive class. I was kind of doing 12 hours a day at this point. Mm. But that day that I learned about mediation, I came home and I remember Googling it till for three hours. Until I basically passed out on my bed. I just couldn't believe that one, this was a field that people could do for a living and get paid for it and that it existed. And then I kind of devoted the rest of my time at the Kennedy School to learning as much as I could about mediation and to get as much experience. So while I was there and doing a, a full course load, I also ended up taking an internship on the side with a company called MWI that I still work with today and just getting as much experience and exposure as possible. And the challenge I quickly realized is that one, a lot of mediators in the world have a legal background and I didn't have that. And two, like in anything, in order to mediate, you needed to have experience. And I didn't have any of that either. But I had the internship and I had the attitude and I was willing to really work at it. So while I was in Boston, I did the internship, I did some training, I got to mediate my first case, I got to observe a ton of cases. But when I moved to New York, it was with the intention of taking, I guess one would call a traditional job, but also to see how I could advance this mediation dream of mine that had kind of emerged while I was in school. So I ended up training with an organization called the New York Peace Institute. They're what's known as a community dispute resolution center. So they provide pro bono mediation services for, I guess, kind of smaller matters in the community. And that was where I started to get some experience and also where I met my now business partner, Isan, who I co-run the mediation with. So I moved to New York. I was applying for jobs. I was struggling kind of like I had the first time because, you know, I had really wanted to do something meaningful with my life and it was a little bit difficult. And then I ended up finally in December getting an offer from a startup company to kind of be like the number two to like the CEO of the company and really interesting mandate, really interesting work. But six weeks in, I realized that I just wasn't passionate about the mission and I wasn't necessarily aligned with the company goals. So I made the decision to leave the company. This was February, 2020. 
And around this time, I had now finished a bunch of mediation trainings and was now officially on the Peace Institute's roster. And there was basically a day in March where I was supposed to fly home to Canada to see my parents. They were moving at the time and I wanted to kind of be there to support that. And I did my first mediation that day. And I remember just coming out of it with that same spark, that same fire that I had felt that time in class when I learned about mediation for the first time. And I was like, I have to find a way to do this. And what's funny is like when I was graduating, my wife was like, you should start your own company. And I'm like, that's crazy. I'm like, why would I start my own company? Like, how would I even do that? But she kind of planted that seed. So I remember on my way to the airport, I called Asan. And I was like, we have to do this. Like this, you know, like we can't wait around for like someone to think that we're good enough to hire us. If we're going to mediate, if we want to mediate full time, we have to start our own company because that puts us in control of our own destinies. So what ended up happening was I flew home, I did the move. And then this was the weekend that the world started to shut down. Mm-hmm. So my flight got canceled. I panicked. I like, rebooked another flight. I made it back to New York because at the time we didn't know if the borders were going to be shut permanently. Mm-hmm. But I came back and I was like, listen, like I'm tired of applying for jobs. I'm tired of working for someone else. Like, I think we should do this. And that's where kind of then was born. So I don't remember what the other names were, but with my mathematical background, I thought then was perfect. And I managed to convince Asan that that should be the name of the company. And away we went. It turned out that like those six weeks with that startup, I was unhappy when I was there, but I learned so much about how a startup starts. So I was able to had like so much knowledge from like setting up like systems and processes. And like, obviously from my previous experience as a chief of staff, like I knew how to run an office and knew how to run an organization. So that combined with the startup combined with the passion for mediation is really what kind of led to the, and the support from both my wife and Asan is what led to the kind of the company being created. And, you know, a year and a half later, here we are. Was it hard to get traction when you first started your company? Yeah, it was very tough, you know, and I actually found it not so bad in the beginning because there was no shortage of things that had to be done. You know, like we had to register the company. We had to set up the website. We had to like set up our Slack channel and like our Trello board and all this kind of stuff. We had to set goals for ourselves. We had to start like content creation. We've written a ton of blogs. So like the fir- I actually found the first six months to be not that bad because it was very clear what needed to be done. But six months in, we'd done all the things we needed to do to set up the company, and we still weren't getting a lot of hits or clients. So that's when I felt it began to become a bit more difficult because one, there were so many different directions that we could go in at that point to try to get more clients. And two, we weren't necessarily seeing the fruits of our labor. And I think that's been the toughest thing about starting a company is you have to find a way to redefine success because from what I get, like most startups don't take off right away and a number of them even fail. And I would be happy if the company was further along, but I also think we've done a lot in the first year and a half, and I'm really happy with that. But like, for example, we, we did a company retreat recently and, you know, we were trying to define new metrics for success that would allow us to feel better about ourselves and stay motivated. So, you know, we were finding that like getting clients wasn't the best metric at first because it was, you know, hard for us to kind of get that. So we set a goal for ourselves that in the next Next year, we had to each talk to 100 people, not like close 100 people, but just talk to 100 people. And this is an approach I think that works really well because talking to 100 people is a goal that you can control. Getting 100 clients is a goal that you can influence, but in some ways it's out of your control. So being able to like set goals for ourselves that were in our control, but still important and not necessarily easy goals, but like attainable goals is kind of helped motivate us going forward. Elnor met his business partner through the New York Peace Institute, where they trained and did an apprenticeship together. By the end of it, they realized they had complementary mediation styles, so they took the leap forward in building their own practice. Based on who I am and my background, I'm very process-oriented. So I'm really good at kind of like moving things forward. You know, like one of the interesting things about mediation, I think that makes it different from therapy, is that it's a little bit more forward-looking but you still have to address the past. What I've come to realize in a lot of conflicts is conflicts can be very circular, meaning that they kind of come back to the same arguments or people can get stuck in conflicts because they haven't received some kind of validation or understanding about something that's transpired in the past. Now, ultimately what we tell our clients and I'll tell people is that you can't change the past. You know, that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be talked about, but where we put our clients in control is what can they do going forward? That's where they have all the power. So a big part of the mediation process is at least having a discussion about what got us to where we are and, you know, how that has affected us. But, you know, as much as possible, we try to pivot to, okay, here's where we are now. You have a lot more information about what got you here. You maybe know what you could have done differently, 
but what can we do now? And that's the value that we provide because there's a lot of conflict out there. I mean, ultimately, that's why we started then. Like, we both were passionate about it. We both wanted to do it. But the real seed of it for us was the fact that we knew coming into a pandemic and just in general, there are so many conflicts and disagreements out there. And most people are terrible at managing those things. And we honestly see mediation as this beautiful, positive, collaborative pathway to get people to better understandings, better agreements, and better deals. And in a way that they probably are not going to do on their own. We still do some pro bono work on the side because, you know, we're cognizant of our roots, but we also know that this is a very valuable service that people need because it is probably costing them time and money and peace of mind. And we can make those conversations so much easier. What are some of like the lessons that you've learned in starting and running a business overall? It's been a great experience. Like I said, I think it's important to really understand like if this is the kind of thing that you want to do. Like one of the things I've struggled with is like just seeing how because my wife runs a business as well. Like I see the way that she operates and I know that she's had a lot more lead time. So I'm not trying to compare her success to my success. It's been evident from day one that she is naturally an entrepreneur. And I'm not necessarily not to say that I can't successfully run a business, but like I can see in her this she gets a lot of joy from creating something. And she gets a lot of joy from building things and and growing them and that kind of stuff. And not to say that that doesn't give me joy, but I've come to realize that I really like the process of things. And I like kind of the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty and just kind of getting things done. And what's great is we support each other in each other's practices. So besides the fact that it helps her immense a lot more processes, I also coach her on all of her difficult conversations and I manage all of her negotiations for her. So (laughs) that's an added bonus. She didn't know she was receiving when we we got (laughs) married. She's been my biggest champion. And like I said, she's the one that planted the seed. She's the one that gave me that encouragement. So, you know, having a good support network can be really helpful because, you know, I have very limited experience to this, but for most stories I've heard, there are successes, there are failures, but, you know, it can take time and there are a lot of failures. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try or you should give up really early, but I think you have to really commit. And that's also why... When I made the decision to start then, I put everything else aside. I think it can be very difficult to be an entrepreneur or start a business when it's just really like on the side or a hobby or 50% of your time. I think if you really want to succeed, and you know, I had the luxury to be able to do this, but you have to really make that your top priority, your 100%. And then, like I said, it's, it's good to find um, someone that has that complementarity to you. I think there's certainly a value to doing things on your own because you get to make all the decisions can be more challenging when you have a partner or more than one partner because then you have to make decisions together. Luckily, we're you know conflict experts, so we know how to have those difficult conversations. That's actually a lie. Even people like ourselves still stuck at still can be terrible at doing it ourselves. But I am a lot better than I used to be, and I've definitely made people around me significantly better than they used to be. So the theory does work. I can assure you, there is a way to be a better negotiator. Can I ask what your wife does? Oh yeah, she's a podiatrist, so foot and ankle surgeon. Wow. And she runs her own business? Yeah. She runs her own practice. We're about to open a third location, which is very exciting. Wow. Congrats. If listeners were to take away the main lessons out of this whole entire conversation, what would you want them to take away? Just based on my experience, I think like really, like I said, I would try to focus in life on the things that we can control and to try as hard as it is to not sweat the things that we can control And as I've said, in my life, that's led to a very indirect path, but I don't regret any of the detours or even potentially backtracks that I took because I feel so much better and stronger for who I am and where I am now because of the path that I took. So it's easy to say that kind of now on the other side of it. I want people to really be cognizant of the fact and accept the fact that, you know, for those more difficult detours for the path, it can be hard in the moment. We have to really acknowledge what we're going through, but you know, as much as possible, this is life. This is our beautiful journey. And, you know, we have to make the most of it. And like I said, if we're lucky enough, like myself to have that luxury, because of all the hard work that people before us have done, I really feel there's a responsibility for us to make the most of these opportunities. Like I said, my greatest fear is snakes, but my real greatest fear is to think that, you know, when I leave this world, I haven't done everything that I possibly could. And I really feel like that's the responsibility I've been given, the one that I I take with a great amount of respect and I take very seriously. I've also come to learn just kind of through my conflict work and my mediation work is that, you know, everyone has their own story and everyone's probably the hero of their own story. So when you're in a disagreement with someone and when you're having a hard time reconciling something with someone, 
you know, there's very few people that are just, I think, naturally bad and that are trying to be difficult on purpose. When you're in a disagreement with someone, you feel very strongly about something and they feel very strongly about the other thing. And it doesn't mean that either of you is right. It just means that there's something that needs to be reconciled there. And what I've come to learn is and why mediation is so helpful is because it allows people to listen. It allows people to understand each other. And not to say that mediators don't need to exist and you can just resolve these things yourself. Sometimes you can, and I'm not trying to undercut my own business, but I, I am trying to say that there are certain tricks that mediators use. And there's, well, there are certain situations that would require a mediator regardless, but there are certain tricks that we use that you can start to use in your everyday life. And like I said, the big one is starting to ask why. So anytime you're struggling to reconcile something with someone, be it to reach an agreement or resolve a disagreement, to really try to understand what's important to the other person. Because ultimately, for two people to reach a deal, it has to be an outcome that both of them are happy with. And as mediators, one of the questions we'll often ask our clients as we near the end of the mediation is, especially if we think they're close to coming to some kind of agreement, is there an outcome that you would be happy with that you think the other person could also be happy with? Because ultimately, they're not going to agree to the deal if they're not happy either. And a lot of people view negotiation as kind of like a win-lose outcome. But at Ben Mediation, we really try to help our clients come to a win-win outcome. And that means addressing the other person's interests, but not eschewing your own. You have to address your own interests too, and you have to be cognizant of that. But when you can address both parties' interests, that's where the best deals happen. And then just as I mentioned earlier, really just this concept of some of the best moments in my life were when I was uncomfortable. So as much as possible, trying to put ourselves in situations that may not be easy necessarily. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying like run an iron, do an Ironman if you've never even walked a kilometer in your life, but give yourself, give yourself challenges, do difficult things. I think you can surprise yourself. One of the funniest moments of my life actually is I once ran 10 kilometers, um, kind of never having run before, but only because my friend told me it was five. Like 10 kilometers is a lot. I don't know. I don't know what the conversion to miles is, but like, it's a lot. And it's basically half a half marathon. So I guess it's a quarter marathon. But like, if he had told me we're going to run 10 kilometers, I would have been like, you're nuts. But we just started, he's like, let's go for a 5k run. And we started running. And at the end of it, he was like, you just ran 10k. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, you just ran 10k. And I'm like, that's impossible. He's like, it's possible because you, you didn't get, in, you didn't get in your own way. You know, like if, like mm-hmm. if you had thought you had to run 10k, you would have given up immediately. But we just started running. And the next thing we knew, we had done more than we ever thought was possible. And that was kind of a really beautiful moment for me. Olner had so many great life lessons to share during our conversation. And the last one he shared was through a pretty insightful story about two siblings who were arguing over an orange. One of the biggest reasons people tend to get bogged down in conflicts or they can't resolve their conflicts is because they get stuck on what I call their positions, which is what they want rather than their interests which is why they want it. And there's a really famous story on this with a a father who walks into his kitchen and he sees his son and his daughter fighting over an orange. And, you know, he wants to resolve the conflict and he knows that maybe compromise is the best way forward. He's probably not going to give the entire orange to one kid over the other because he doesn't want to play favorites. So he figures compromise is the best outcome. So he takes the orange and he cuts it in half and he gives half the orange to his son and he gives half the orange to his daughter. So he starts to walk away and then he turns around just to kind of see if they're still fighting. And as he turns around, he sees the daughter remove the peel from the orange and throw it in the garbage. And she eats the fruit and she walks away. And then he sees his son remove the peel from the orange, throw away the fruit. And he takes the peel and he uses the zest um, for a recipe that he's working on. And the father quickly realized that if he had taken the time to ask them why they want the orange, what their interest was, he actually could have given an entire orange to each of his kids because he could have given the whole peel to his son. He could have given the whole fruit to his daughter. And rather than compromising and giving them half value, each one could have walked away with full value. And that's the beauty of what mediation can do, but also how we coach people and how to approach their negotiations where, you know, you don't have to settle or compromise necessarily. If you can understand why something is important to the other person, you can oftentimes create value. And that's that's where things can often get better. Oh, that was a really nice like lesson learning story. I also think it really speaks to the importance of communication, right? Like if the daughter and the son had just spoken to each other and and you know expressed like, okay, I, I'd like this orange because I'm hungry and I want to eat the actual fruit part. And if the son had said, Hey, I, I just want the orange because I want like the skin of it to to do, you know, whatever I need to do. 
So anyways, I don't know. So it's, it's, it's a really good story that, that helps you think about perspectives and things like that. Yeah, but that's also the kind of what I've come to realize is that I think you're 100% right, but oftentimes the reason why that doesn't happen is these things can escalate very quickly and we start to become emotionally invested mm-hmm. in the outcomes and then it becomes a lot more difficult. So that's why, like I said, I genuinely feel and have seen that sometimes you, you do need a mediator, but for kind of day-to-day stuff, there are things like even in terms of where your family wants to go on a vacation, you know, that can become a very heated discussion or where are we going to go for dinner tonight? Like we're basically, we don't realize it because we, a lot of us think we're uncomfortable with conflict, but we're negotiating like all the time. Every day you're probably negotiating five or six different things, but we don't kind of view it that way. And we don't realize how uncomfortable it can make it. So just learning to ask why and, you know, having a genuine desire to understand where the other person is coming from can help you resolve some of these smaller disputes. But for the bigger disputes, you should definitely call it mediation. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ulnar. This was great. I wish you all the best with Men Mediation and can't wait to see just how it scales up. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Smiley Connection. If you'd like to connect with Ulnar Merrily or learn more about any of the resources he mentioned, check out the show notes. And if you're enjoying the show so far, please give us a review and a five-star rating on the Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast apps. It takes less than five minutes to do that compared to the hours of work that goes into each podcast episode. So we'd be eternally grateful for your time and support. We'd also love to hear your feedback. So reach out to us at ipnpodcast at ipnonline.net. This episode was produced by me and edited by the talented Cass Elite. Reem Merchant, our amazing head of relationship management, also helped to research and report for this episode. Marketing for this episode was carried out by the stellar Samin Jawani. Our cover is designed by the skilled Shaquille Woolman. Also, many thanks to Soha Momin, the head of strategic initiatives at IPN, and Dolly Lakani, our speaker advisor for the Smiley Connection. And lastly, I'd also like to thank the team behind SimonSays.ai, the software that helps the Smiley Connection get its transcripts. Thanks so much again for listening. Be safe and be well.